Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Shell Bays, and it's a joy to have been asked to preach as part of the Summer Psalm series that MCBC is producing for churches to use or not use as they wish. I want to give a big thanks as I get into this message today to Harry Leung, who's helping with the technical aspects of this, producing this, and also Anne, my wife, who helped with a little bit of a graphic for us. Now, normally in the pilgrim context, the church that I'm still serving, uh, at least through uh, the end of June into the early part of July, uh, we would have more stuff on the screen, but since we're producing this for a video, um, it's gonna, we're going to keep it simple. And I'm also told that I need to keep my preaching in the 20-minute range, which we'll see. Okay. Uh, the other thing I'd like to say, again, is uh, thanks to Kevin for inviting me to participate in this as well. I mean, how can you say no to Kevin Barkowski? I could not. Hopefully before this, you have read through Psalm 91. Someone in your congregation has been a lector and has uh, read that out for you. And that's what we're going to be basing uh, the, the message on today. And also, I want to introduce to you, if you're not familiar, with the three sort of overarching categories of psalms that Walter Brueggemann gives us. And those three categories sort of catch various other genres of psalms that a guy named Herman Gunkel really sort of spearheaded back in the day in terms of dividing psalms into different things like lament, communal lament, personal lament, praise, thanksgiving, and others. I forget he had something like 10, 11 categories. And there's different, been different categorizations of that as well. So this psalm, Psalm 91, uh, is again a psalm of thanksgiving that fits with under Brueggemann's third category of what's called uh, new orientation. So new orientation, uh, Walter writes, the Psalms regularly bear witness to the surprising gift of new life just when none had been expected. This is new orientation, which is not a return to the old stable orientation, for we cannot go back. There is no such going back, he writes. But once you get real with God, there is no going back to what is the pre-candor situation. And so we want to talk about this leaning into newness that can open up after we've gone through these death-dealing experiences in life, after the pit, that there can be new life, and we can name it as well. So about Psalm 91, the language of the psalm does not strike many of us uh, as hard, or excuse me, language does strike many of us as hard to embrace. The language of fighting and payback and rescue uh, and arrows and, and being attacked by ferocious beasts, this kind of uh, complexity, this kind of language is not something we use in reference to our trials in our lives today very much. And yet maybe it's important to rediscover this poetic language, to see the metaphor speaking to what we face. In fact, in the ancient church, they mainly understood this psalm through the lens of spiritual warfare, through demonic attack, through psychological um, uh, challenges that one faces, through uh, vices and virtues that one is tempted to uh, experience in life. And so we, I think, when we begin to think through it that way and we understand these as metaphors, speaking of the totality of the sense of the destructiveness that we may experience personally or socially, it gives us a little more uh, to hang on to as we look through this psalm. One of the other remarkable things about this psalm is that the devil, it is put in the mouth of the devil in Matthew chapter 4 in the temptation of Christ. The devil quotes this psalm, which of course this use of the Bible should not surprise us that scripture can be twisted and distorted and that we are always doing interpretation and the interpretive community of the local church centered in on Christ is vitally important as we read Old Testament and New Testament or Hebrew Bible, Older Testament and the New Covenant uh, together and we interpret and understand. This psalm is used in the opening of a funeral within the Eastern Orthodox Church tradition 
And within many monastic communities, this psalm is part of the regular cycle of daily psalms that are read. Patrick Henry Reardon reminds us about this traditional interpretation as well as enemies understood, and I want to say this again, as spiritual, as psychological and emotional, uh, and also emotional vices. We are attacked with temptations, he writes, and trials that the Bible uses many symbols and metaphors for. One is called a lion because of its wild fury and raging ferocity, quoting John Cassian. And another an adder because of the mortal poison that kills before it is noticed. And another uh, an antisentar or an urchin or an ostrich because of the subtlety of its malice. This idea of how this psalm has been used and understood in the various language that we just heard. James Waltner, uh, of blessed memory, I believe, a South Dakota native, was a Mennonite uh, who then did a commentary for the Believer's Church Commentary. Uh, he divides this into three sections, and most biblical scholars use a similar breakdown, verses 1 and 2, this invitation to finding refuge or sanctuary in God. Verses 3 through 13, which is sort of this category of all the things that can come at us, and instruction and encouragement. And then the last little section, verses 14 through 16, where the voice of God comes in and the narration shifts, and now God's voice is heard, the divine oracle of assurance. Uh, Waltner calls it those last section there. So let's talk a little more about Brueggemann's categories, and then I'll just walk, we'll read through Psalm 91 one more time and ask some questions of the text and uh, maybe let the text provoke us as well. So New Orientation Psalms, Brueggemann writes, is the move from, into disorientation is not the only move made in the faith of ancient Israel or in the literature of the Psalms. And while at times the speaker may be left in the pit, for like example, Psalm 88, this is not the characteristic case. And so there's a turn from even some of those psalms of disorientation. Well, what's a psalm of orientation? Well, the first category is seasons of well-being. Seasons that evoke gratitude for constancy and blessing. Everything is harmonious as it should be. These kinds of psalms tell of joy and delight and goodness, coherence, and the reliability of God and nature and the governing law. Some of the uh, psalms of occasions of well-being, Psalm 47, for example, is an orientation psalm, psalms that speak of life as it should be, the systems working, God's order, God's justice, faithfulness, regularity, social groups and systems are harmonious, relationships are what they should be, psalms of orientation. And they make also the theological point that it seems like God's plan for our lives and our plans for our lives are working out and things are well. And so we give praise in these psalms of orientation because everything seems as it should be. And it is right to give praise and thanks. But we all know if you live life for very long that there are other things that intrude on that sense of well-being and everything is fine. And the psalms gives language to that as well. And those are disorientation psalms. I want to pause and give a little bit of a prophetic critique there on Psalms of Orientation. These are the Psalms also that the empire and the powers like us to parrot and to avoid and ignore anything that doesn't fit. It's when things want to claim peace, peace, when there is no peace. Psalms of Orientation can be misused as well. And this kind of language of harmony can be distorting when the empire says peace and security, but it's on the necks of destruction and injustice and subject subjugation, these psalms can be distorted as well. So we need to remember there's also psalms of disorientation. And these are naming, giving words to seasons of hurt, alienation, suffering, and death. They often invoke rage at an evil that is being done, maybe with impunity, resentment, self-pity, hatred. And these poems and speech forms are matched with this ragged, painful disarray and the speech that lament, uh, Brueggemann says, is shape that permits the extravagance 
hyperbole, exaggeration, and abrasiveness needed for this experience. Psalms of disorientation give us language and permission to name the brokenness in our lives, in our world, in the powers, political and otherwise. And I would like to say as well, these are the kind of psalms and the kind of language that empires like to censor, that they like to reduce, that they like to control because it takes away the false pretense of harmony, superficial harmony, often imposed by the power of destruction of the state. I also remember uh, in a personal situation, a pastor who was a guest in a class I took years ago about losing his teenage son to a freak snowmobile accident. We call them snow machines. I don't know, I'm a dual citizen. And it involved a crash, and his son hit his head on a culvert in a ditch, and he lost his child. And he spoke about the grief and the anger and the rage and his directing it at God. This kind of language is disorientation language, and we need it. Lament psalms fit in this category. We sat down by the rivers of Babylon and wept. The language of rage at the evils of impunity of the empire, wishing the children of the empire and the elites to have their heads dashed against that language is in the Psalms. This is a disorientation psalm. Again, it's not prescriptive. It's not saying this is what we should do. Rather, this is what has happened to us and these are our feelings. And maybe all seems lost. False holiness is the wrong response to evil. Just claiming harmony when there is none, that is a problem. And the Psalms give us this language. And then finally, the category that we're going to spend a little time on here before my time is up on new orientation, that surprise breaks in when we were overwhelmed in the disorientation and the brokenness, all of a sudden, unexpectedly, there's a gift of new life in the midst of this war zone of this world we live in. Joy breaks through despair. Brueggemann writes, where there has only been darkness, there is light. The surprise of the gospel and the Psalms speak boldly about a gift, a new gift from God, a fresh invasion that makes all things new. And these Psalms affirm the kind of sovereignty that no matter what we face, God knew all the possibilities of all the agents and has plans to work through it and put us in a new situation. Indeed, some of this language, if we apply his categories to other Psalm-like language within the New Testament, we see this in Mary's Magnificat. We see this as well in, the, in the, um, the language, the apocalyptic language within Revelation, the final turning and pulling back from the Isaiah prophecies that the lamb will lie down with the lion and this ending and there will be war no more and the new heavens and the new earth in the last chapters of the book of Revelation as well, new orientation. These three movements are patterns that speak to our seasons in life and give us words and give us permission. And the new orientation is when this final, this move from disorientation that again, newness, new life, new coherence, just when we thought it was all over and everything was dark and everything was evil, we thought we lost our cognition, we lost our ability to think through the stuff, we are moved from the pit and it's unexplainable except the intervention and the goodness of the creator who we name scandalously and particularly in Jesus. And the responses then are delight, amazement, wonder, awe, and gratitude. These Psalms are important to understand that this new orientation comes and when it comes, it cannot be explained, predicted, or programmed. I think of the great book some years ago, Critical Journey by Janet Hagberg and Robert Goulish that speak about this place of our journey and at one point in our journey, we hit a wall and the only way through the wall is for God to bring us through and we try to climb around it, we try to go over it, we try to dig around it, we try to avoid it. But new orientation speaks of that God bringing us through the wall on the other side out of the pit, which you never thought you'd get out of, 
you have been lifted up. He lifted me up out of the miry pit. He set my feet upon the rock. New orientation. So this Psalm 91 that we read this morning is a Thanksgiving Psalm. And most Thanksgiving Psalms fit under that bigger category of new orientation. Most obvious uh, of the new orientation songs, in fact, are this idea of Thanksgiving. Because generally, speakers are now on the other side of lament or complaint or some evil, and God has acted in response to the prayers, and they're naming God's action in the world. And old issues have been overcome, and thanks comes out of rescue and intervention of flipping or an inversion of a real situation that was a real problem for the speaker of the psalm now has been changed, and now they pour forth thanks. Thank you, Lord, for pulling me out of the pit. This is a thanksgiving, of, a thanksgiving and a praise declaration of God's goodness through and after trials. Again, these dangers are strange for us to think about in the modern world as they're listed here. But there is this concept of applying it through the pains that we do experience and the loss we do experience. We move into the psalm. So quickly again, you who live under the shadow or the shelter of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty God as a dwelling place, that the presence of God is a space that we inhabit, that we can inhabit this in terms of our spirit, our mind, our thinking, that there is a certain kind of refuge when we understand that we can be rooted and grounded in God, a God who has revealed his love. And I will say of the Lord, verse 2, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. How interesting that God is named as a refuge, a mountainous safe place where an eagle's nest or habitat would be. And the refuge, this metaphor for God's care and protection throughout the Psalms, it's a noun and a verb, a refuge, and we are called to take refuge in this presence of God, of Yahweh. And then the big middle section, verses 3 through 13, I will deliver you from the snare, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you'll find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and defense. This theme of deliverance and defense poetically built on in verse four, like a mother bird protecting her young and metal armor as well. This need for protection. There's this tenderness of God and this protection found in living in relationship with God. Verse three, the images are about surprise and danger. The snare is not seen until it's too late and disease is deadly. But the promise is that what God's love does, it provides us in the midst of that is adequate. There's a bit of a turn at verse 5, and we're to consider confidence that comes when we have God as our safety. Brueggemann uses the idea of safe shelter and safe journey, or no fear and no fall in these middle sections, verses 5 through verses 10. You will not fear the terror by night, or the arrow that flies by day, or the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, or the destruction that wastes at noonday. This language as well was used in those monastic communities about the midday temptations of life, the noonday, the, um, uh, the, the, the acidity, the, the setting in of laziness or sloth or this sense of just the natural winding down. I think today we talk about knowing our biorhythms and, and what, when is the best time to do certain things and when is the best time to rest from our labors. And so understanding that, they prayed through this and thought about spiritual attack that can come as we experience the different ups and downs within our day and within our body, being aware of that and being able to connect with God even in our bodies and knowing what's happening. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right, but it will not come near you. You only look with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Verses 7 through 8. This protection of things that maybe we have turned from and we are no longer walking in ways that were self-destructive anymore. So we now experience the protection. 
We may read this and think about it a bit too literally and, and sort of laugh at it and say, how does that even apply? But when we think in terms of our turning away and maybe not facing literal dangers at this way so much, but rather that we can call upon God in prayer and worship when we are filled with anxiety, when we are experiencing some of that uh, trauma and stress within us. Verses 9 and 10 and then through 13, because you have made the Lord your refuge. Again, this idea of God as a dwelling place, as a shelter, as a refuge. No evil shall befall you, nor scourge come near your tents. This most consistent application of this, I think, would be from internal protection, from judgment, from uh, spiritual warfare or oppression. This idea that in uh, finding our strength and being rooted and grounded in God's love and who he is gives us strength to continue on in the face of all kinds of evil around us. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard all your ways, verse 11. And on your hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. The text of New Orientation does pose a danger in that we can read it in isolation as if it were magic. We don't just simply repeat it to expect it in and of itself to accomplish something. In fact, we're reminded that Satan uses these verses 11 and 12 to tempt Jesus. One biblical scholar says this, Satan placed Jesus on the pinnacle of the temple and challenged him to jump off to test God's promise that the angels would bear him up. The temptation was to take this promised protection of God into his control and his own will and act. This moves the power of the promise from the free will of God to the individual will. And again, this is called out by Jesus. This is a misunderstanding. I like how Henry Nouwen says that it is a temptation to be spectacular, the misuse of divine gift for personal gain. Think about all of the unmasking of the nonsense in many of our megachurches, the shiny show productions of Christianity in North America. This misuse of charisma, personal or otherwise, or even spiritual gifts for personal gain at the expense of others. And in this temptation to be spectacular, Jesus also said no to the tempter and quoted scripture back. This relationship based on trust doesn't need to continually test it, but tests will come in every relationship. We don't want to reduce this psalm to some sort of magical recitation. What does it mean to live in a world of evil? What should our response be? And the psalm declares it's speaking forth a new world, that evil and darkness and death and disease and destruction and injustice is not the final word. This psalm is a means to motivate us to not be paralyzed by fear. Our church has been in decline. We've lost young people. How are we going to move into the new orientation, the new thing that God has for us? And fear keeps us from taking initiative and doubling down and clinging tightly to what we think we still control. And new orientation psalms tell us to release and be rooted in love. And then finally, let's move to the end here. Verses 14 through 16. Those who love me, the narration, the voice shifts to the creator, to God. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. And when they call to me, I will answer and I will be with them in trouble. And I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. At the very end of the psalm, we hear God's voice coming in. And God's motive to act is to return out of the returning of love. And now we're told something about what are we truly rooted in again. Life flows out of a love relationship with God. And the highest form of security and the deepest stage in spiritual journey, to quote Janet Hagberg again, is the life of love. And the life of love changes how we see all of these things that we thought were the end, whether it was the destructiveness or attacks or, or loss, grief, all of those things that make us up. 
are important and they shape us and form us. But we are also rooted in something beyond those things, relationship. And in fact, love makes all those things worth it and makes the loss worth it, the risk worth it. Loving God is our deepest source of strength. It is our dwelling place on the journey. And the psalmist starts out with human trust, but ends in the promise of God. As we close this down, I want to remind you of Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. And if you've been a believer for very long, you know these. And if you don't, it's a good thing to learn, to internalize, to repeat. And Paul, who has been through all kinds of destruction and loss of friends and loss of those that were around him and has been beaten and has been beaten within an inch of his life, as we would say, he has experienced all kinds of persecution, loss of political power, loss of religious power, loss of social standing. And yet he continues on sharing the story of Jesus. And he says, what do we say about all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he experienced a lot of what we would say, you got a lot of stuff against you, Paul. <laughs> Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for his all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ is the one who died. And after that, he was raised who is at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us. The presence of God, the sheltering of God. God is active right now, thinking about you, praying for you in your situations. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And that is the key, the one thing that remains. Will trouble, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Most of us would say, yes, those are horrible, horrible things, and we would not choose them, or at least if we were in a proper psychological state, we would not actively choose these things. And he's saying, these things cannot separate us from the love of God. For all your sake, we encounter death all day long, considered sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, knowing all these things, we have complete victory. Well, what kind of victory is that? Through him who loved us. For I am convinced this is the nature of the victory. This is the nature of what happens when we abide in the love ethic of Jesus and the life of love. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor the powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So how do we experience and lean into this? How do we read this psalm? How do we understand it? New orientation and rooted and grounded in this relationship with God. And that is our ultimate protection that sees us through all of the things of life. Even death, it brings us through to the other side. And this is the blessed hope of the resurrection and the life of the world to come. So in conclusion, we may be reminded, the devil uses saw this psalm to try to get Jesus to take the wrong kind of risk. This gives us, we can do a whole series on misinterpreting scripture and understanding we're always doing interpretation and that the arc and the plot of the whole thing matters, that it's all leading us towards this being in a living relationship with a living Christ, a God who wants closeness and nearness to us scandalously and particularly so we can know love. The second thing I want to remind us of is that fear can paralyze us and fear as a check is fine, but immobility in the spiritual journey, that is something that we need to push back against. We are called to move beyond those things that would normally bring us to paralysis and not simply rest in that place, but know that there is more and receive it as a gift of God's grace, new orientation. And third and finally, a reminder that the only way we tap into supernatural protection is from the heart, a heart of love of God. This relational theism is revealed in Psalm 91. And as we read it through Romans 8 and the work of Jesus Christ.
It is the love of God that draws us near. It is the love of God that is our refuge, that is our strength. It is our source that moves us beyond and to take risks and to continue to risk even in the face of all kinds of destruction and injustice in our world. Well, I want to thank you for letting me share this morning with you. I look forward to meeting all of you as I visit churches and am there to encourage and strengthen and add my gifts to your gifts to this season ahead at MCBC. I pray these things and I bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said,